Hello and welcome to Too Fit to Be Tied. Where we talk about health from a variety of perspectives. Emotional health. Mental health. Physical health. And spiritual health. My name is Jerome. And I'm your co-host, Constance. All right, so another episode of Too Fit to Be Tied. What are we talking about today? We are talking about resilience. All right. I don't know what that word means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do. You definitely know what this means. Um, so resilience is able to withstand or recover quickly from difficult conditions. Uh, the other portion or definition of it is able to recoil or spring back into shape after bending, stretching, or being compressed. I don't know about you, but uh, I've definitely been <laughs> the way <laughs> been bent and stretched and compressed. Yeah, it just <laughs> sounded really weird. Are the way you sure it was about you want to talk out, about right? that? <laughs> I'm like, wanna, mm, this sounds weird coming out of my mouth. Yeah, have you ever that. been bent, stretched, or compressed? Absolutely. I, I, I think one of the re- resilience comes from you know having been through those things, and the more things you go through the more you're able to handle. So, you know, for example, if, if your life was, you know, 100% easy your entire, the entire time, when you come up against something difficult, it's going to be much tougher to handle it. Yeah. What's one of the things in your life that makes you feel like you're resilient? I think resilience comes from survival, like having to survive in a maybe a dark place or a really hard time or going through, like you said, you know, hard times. I think that I was just, I had to be resilient. You know, people have have said that many times. You're so resilient. You just bounce back. It's like, I don't know how to not do that. It's not like I've studied resilience or I've been like, I'm going to be more resilient. It's just how I am. And I think as a kid, I learned how to cope and have these coping skills to be able to survive my own dysfunctional family. And for me, mm-hmm. I think that's why I'm resilient because, um, I mean, I t- I told, I've told the audience, I've told you many times when I was a kid, I always wished that my parents, you know, came to me and said, uh, we're not actually your real parents. <laughs> um, you were adopted. It was like my dream as a kid that mm-hmm. they would one day tell me, like, I, remember, I think I would rummage through like drawers and stuff to see if I could find my adoption papers. You're like, this can't be. I'm like, this it can't, can't be, real. be that I'm born to these people. Um, and so you learn to just cope and survive, you know, thinking mm-hmm. like, okay, maybe one day my real parents will show up. And then you find out, nope, <laughs> <laughs> these is, are them. <laughs> this is this is it. Well, okay. And this makes me think about something else though. So um, you become resilient by going through these things and then coming out of the other side. But I think there's an aspect of it that is something that you're born with. Because not everybody can go through a difficult situation and come out the other side. Some some people, they just melt down and and they just aren't able to, to handle it. You're right. So I think there's, you know, I think there's something in you that is able to be strengthened by going through 
these challenging things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's part of your DNA and you're just, I don't know, maybe you're just born with it. Um, but it does seem easier for some than others. Mm-hmm. And I do think circumstantial, so circumstantially, it you just get better at being resilient when you've had more strife in your life. Well, yeah. If, if you already are born with that, you know, sort of portion of ability to exactly. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, if you go through situations that are, I don't know, you could um level one through level 10 in terms of adversity. Um, once you get to like an eight, when a five or six shows up, you go, well, I handled that eight pretty good. So I know I can do this. Mm-hmm. You know, you you kind of get to the point where, oh, I've been through some hard shit before. So I know that I can come out of the other side of this. Mm-hmm. Where somebody else might have that six level and all they've had are level ones and twos their entire life. And, and they feel like, it's the end of the world. Okay, think of it like strength training, right? Absolutely. So you're yes. a new client, and I say, you know what? You're gonna bench, I don't know, you know, 250 pounds. And you're like, there's no way. I've never even worked out a day in my life. It's mm-hmm. impossible. You don't even wanna try, right? Right. But if I've slowly given you 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 40 pounds, 80 pounds, 100 pounds, 150 pounds, you know, 200, if I ask you to add a 50 more pounds, it doesn't seem as impossible because you've trained for it. Exactly. You've practiced. Yeah. Um, and I think it's funny because in business, I've had so many, so many setbacks and so many hardships um, and so many relationships that have, you know, kind of been what some would call, you know, hard. Um, in business, strictly I'm talking about right now, but mm-hmm. it's like to me, I'm like nothing is going to ruin me that badly. I've been through so much worse Yeah, in my own personal relationships, divorce. I mean, and then take it to my childhood. Again, like no one can even touch what I've been through as a child. So like if I was through that, I I can get, I know I can get through anything. Absolutely. And that's my perspective on it. You know? Got it. Yeah. What about you? Um, How do you feel your resilience level is? Oh, I think it's pretty good because I've been through some some challenging things. Um, I don't know if I ever told you about my college experience. Which one? I only went to one. I college. mean, which experience? Oh, which You've experience? had a lot of experiences. Oh, got it. Well, when... Um, oh, I know. Oh, so basically, um, I get to college um, at the end of my freshman year. Um, my dad has a heart attack. Mm-hmm has triple bypass surgery, money is tight. I had a lot of scholarships and that sort of thing. So we didn't, we didn't have to pay a ton, but what we had to pay was a lot to us. Okay. So by the time junior year rolls around, um, I don't have money for tuition. And luckily at the time, you know, just the way things were set up, I stayed in the dorm for another whole like uh, quarter um, the, uh, the meal plan people found out and I was working for the cafeteria That's at right. the time uh-huh. and they said, you can't keep coming in here and eating. And finally the manager said, okay, if you're working, you can eat. So you're like, all right, I'm best. That, where's my apron? That, where's, where's my apron? In between that, I was eating like Doritos and generic Doritos. Oh my God. And generic like 
pop or something like that. And those ramen noodles that yeah. come in the little, and that was it. I was washing my clothes in a bucket. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. The, the few shirts I had, I'm washing them in a bucket. Um, at one point, I had to go to my professors because I wasn't technically registered for classes and said, can you just please let me sit in these classes? And then if I can pay, keep track of my grades. And then mm-hmm. if I can pay at the end, you can then enter my grades later. And, um, and meanwhile, my classmates, their parents are just like, you know, rolling out the, you know, the whole tuition. And, um, and it was, you know, uh, it was really challenging. And at the end, um, I can't, I don't have time to go into all of it, but you kind of get the, you kind of get the message. Um, at the end of it, I graduated and said, wow, that was pretty tough. Mm-hmm. And later in life, when you go through challenging things, I'm like, okay, I was able to handle that. I can handle this thing. Right. Right. Um, that's, that is amazing. That, first of all, that's amazing. And you're right. A lot of people would be like, oh, screw it. Can't afford it. I'm done. Like that, oh. they would have taken that as a message as to, as to, well, this isn't my path. I guess I'm just gonna well, get a part-time job. And they, the people, you know, the people in the finance department or the bursar's office or whatever said, you know, well, maybe you should just take a quarter off and go home and come back later. I'm like, I can't do that. Right. I'm like, I might not, I might never get back here. Yeah. You know, yeah. I've been through three years of this. That's amazing. And then I'm gonna walk away and just still be a high school graduate. I mean, not that anything's wrong with that, but I'm like, I can't go home. Yep. And they were like, well, we can't. I'm like, you got, you can do something. <laughs> so, <laughs> something's got to happen. You know, you know what the other I, thing is? I think what, what and, and maybe you can attest to this, you, when you have resilience, you cannot, you can't deal with your emotions right at that time. Because if you do, you won't move forward. So oh, sometimes yeah. you have to just say, you know what? I will deal with this later. Mm-hmm. Um, I just know I have to come up with a plan of action, and yeah. this is what I have to do. You almost get like hyper vigilant on what the actual goal is, and you're like, "I'll figure this out later." Oh yeah, you got to put your head down. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you start thinking about things, you'll just unravel. Yep. Yes. Yes. I can. I'm. I'm really good at that. <laughs> Putting my head down and being like, "I'll just deal with this emotion later," and it always surfaces, and you're just in a state of like, what is shock really? Yeah. How did, I, how did I do that? Yeah. Or what, why am I feeling this way? And it's like, oh wait, I haven't processed these emotions when exactly. the time yeah. was, you know, seemed appropriate. Um, I was too busy, you know, putting my head down. Yeah. Um, okay. So today we have a guest. Her name is Lisa Gregorich. She actually is uh, an old colleague of mine. We work together and uh, I'm going to call her and then I'll, I'll give you all the backstory, but I want her to I want her to hear this one. I haven't talked to her um, in depth in a while. And so I want her to know what I have to say. I mean, I guess she could listen to the podcast and hear what I have to say about her. But she's going to be on the podcast. That's true. Hello. Hey, Lisa. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. You're here with uh, Jerome and, and me. Hi. Hi, Lisa. How are you guys? Good. Thanks for doing this. Yes, of course. Jerome, long time no see either. I remember you from uh, the fitness days. Ah. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> I'll have to, you might, you know her if you saw her face. I'll show you. <laughs> okay. Um, Lisa, I'm so sorry I screwed up the time. That's so typical of me. It's, <laughs> it's okay. So thanks for understanding. Um, I know, not at all. 
Bef- before, so I introduced you, um, and I said that, you know, we had worked together uh, a long time ago. And yes. I have to say, if it weren't for your smiling face and your amazing personality, I would not have gotten through that job. And I really mean that. So, Thank you. That means a lot. No, I'm serious. Like, you, <laughs> that was rough. That was a rough stage of my career. Um, and Lisa was always, you know, so just friendly and fun and this amazing personality, always positive. And then when you get to know somebody, you end up finding out, holy shit, this person has been through so much. So we are talking about resilience and really and truly, you're the perfect person for this interview because man, you've been through so much and you are still as fun loving and positive as ever. And I don't know how you do it. You know, it's just keep going, right? One foot in front of the other. That's what you kind of learn. And, you know, what you take away from everything that happens that can help other people. Totally. That's why we, well, that's why we do this podcast. So (laughs) tell us, if you would, go ahead and start from, you know, like, tell us a little bit about your first experience in having to be resilient. Um, I would definitely say growing up. So I grew up in Northbrook, which is a, uh, you know, hoity-toity ritzy town, you know, um, and family, my home life was not the greatest. Um, I had a mom who was sick, but also very, very extremely abusive. Um, and it was hard, hard growing up in Northbrook with, you know, all of my amazing friends I was very thankful for and their beautiful houses and normal families and um, coming home to chaos and um, in school, you know, having teachers and social workers call you out of class when they find bruises on you and um, DCFS coming to your house and, you know, counseling and, you know, possibly being sent to a school far away um, for what was going on in your home. And were you honest with people, Lisa, when you were a kid, were you honest in telling like DCFS or, you know, counselors what was actually happening or did you have to feel like you had to protect your family? No, not protect my family per se. I would say I felt the need to, because I was in that, you know, social circle that, you know, had so many friends kind of, put on that front. And I feel uh, some of my friends saw it happen though. I did have a few friends that unfortunately witnessed me, my mom come after me while they were there in my home. Um, and I also had counselors, you know, I had to go to counseling. I remember Mrs. Schwartz was probably the one who was most helpful and actually the one that ended up calling DCFS when they came and investigated. Um, my dad's a wonderful person. My dad never laid a hand on me, but he had left an abusive home in New York to get away from that. Um, and my mom would go after him too. So it was just, it was one of those things where my sister and I, our rooms were kitty corner and we would talk to the vents and check each other and make sure we were okay. And it got bad sometimes. I mean, it was one of those things where I'd go to school and put my best foot forward and laugh and smile and still be that silly girl. But underneath, you know, there's a few times, you know, I was either getting dragged around by my hair. I mean, there was a couple of times she tried to hit me with her car. I mean, there was... Wow stuff that went on in the house that was pretty intense. And so I would try to just 
make the best and surround myself with the positive energy of my friends and do good and do the best I could and kind of keep everyone from knowing what was going on besides the few that had witnessed it. Where, where did you find that mindset to try to keep the positive attitude um, in the in the face of all this that was going on? I think it was really just realizing, you know, you come to a point, I think, too, and it's happened throughout my life. You just, it was, I couldn't control what was going on, right? Like, I was a kid, so, like, I had a choice. I mean, it was happening, right? You can't really do much about that, but you can figure out and control the aftermath of it all, like what you can do, um, you know, how you, how you respond, you know, like, you know, and it's funny when you grow up in a household like that, you know, everyone always assumes you're going to be this like, oh, she's going to turn out like that. And she's going to be this, you know, terrible person. And, you know, you, you know, you start realizing that's not who I'm going to be and you have a choice. And, you know, I choose to, you know, be positive and try to help others and be kind and kill them with kindness instead of the, you know, abuse that I had gone through growing up. Well, that, well, that's interesting. I, I have this thing I say that, um, you know, people that handle things like that, like you, are um, extraordinary because ordinarily people would fall into those same cycles and patterns that they, um, uh, that they experienced growing up. And it takes somebody, um, I think, at another, I think an ex- extraordinary person to be able to say, oh, I see that. That was my experience, but I'm not going to be that way. Absolutely. It does. And, you know, it, it does happen. And I think my sister and I, and Kansas knows my sister a little bit, but my sister's a wonderful person too, very different. But you can see how that upbringing affected both of us. My sister's a little more hardened um, not as a big of a social light or like outgoing and whatever stuff that I do. Um, but you know, it changed both of us, I think, um, for the rest of our lives. Do you, you feel know? like you have a really strong kind of relationship with her because you guys both went through something similar? Um, I love her very much, but yeah, we do not have a, a very, very strong relationship. I hmm. think it's, you know, my mom was also sick, so it was hard, I think. And this is, you know, where you grew up. So she literally went from being abusive to being sick. She had MS and a brain disease, and so that was hard too, right? That went out of my house. Um, I actually left college, came home. My dad was taking care of her. We had nurses in the home where she would lose it and yell at them and um, just, we, I'd have to keep the nurses staying and apologizing for the behavior and, you know, I think where my sister, she may have, you know, built different feelings for what had happened and let it go. You know, unfortunately, I also got the worst of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Being the type of person I was in school and everyone in therapy used to say it was the jealousy syndrome of me being the one that had all the friends and was popular and grew up in a household where, you know, that stuff happened, but I was still able to, you know, persevere. Um, and my sister, not so much. So I kind of got the brunt of it. And my sister and I, I think, you know, where she let it go. I never really built a relationship with my mom. Like I had no feelings when she eventually got really sick and was put in a nursing home after the abuse, after being sick in my home and that happening, I had no, there was just, I wanted to have feelings. I had, it was no feelings there. And it was, it's funny because I never had her apologize, right? Like maybe in front of a therapist here or there, but 
Mm-hmm. It wasn't until she was in a nursing home and really sick repeatedly where she was kind of losing it in her head and not all there anymore, where she would constantly just repeat that she's sorry when she saw me. Wow. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I knew what it meant, but, you know, at that time, it's, what do you do with it? And right. I did, you know, when she did finally pass, which she did, I wrote her a letter saying that I forgave her and put it in her casket um, for everything that she had done. And that was my way of kind of letting go. But unfortunately, Emily and I, like, will bond together. I'll always have her back. I did through high school. Um, always will. But we are not super close, unfortunately. Sometimes situations like that can go, I think, either way. You either form this bond because you've been through something together or you actually see things very differently. And sometimes, um, you know, one person has to hold on to a certain belief because that's just how they have to survive, you know? Um, And sometimes you have a strained relationship. Sometimes it's sort of just very surface and sometimes it's very close. That's why I wanted to ask. I was curious. Yeah. Um, Because I have both extremes on, on my end with my family. Really? Yeah. One sister I'm very close with because we've been through things together. And the other sibling, I it's like he remembers the past in a completely different way. And it's just, you know what? That's how he has to survive. So. Yeah. All right. So tell us, you have dealt with some serious grief in your life as well. So in addition to this, you know, growing up in this kind of home, tell us a little bit about the grief process and your experience with that. Because I think this is like, this this really, really makes you even more extraordinary because, again, you've built that resilience up. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, ironically, I went to high school with um, a young man that um, hung out with a lot of the boys a year ahead of me, and he was one of them. Um, we was always good friends, kind of dated each other's friends throughout high school, went to college, right, came home and reunited um, to this young man and became engaged. He was the most amazing human ever, um, definitely a soulmate. He was just incredible. Um, we lived together at a house in Northbrook and spent all of our time together and you know, love of animals and all of that. Um, and one day he had, well, what I thought was a stomach flu and I hate to say it, but men aren't as good about going to the doctors or wanting to go to the doctors for that matter mm. as much as we are. And he had been, we thought it was stomach flu. He had been throwing up. And so I was like, you know, we're going to my doctor. You're going, it's, and, you know, that's what we're doing. Took him there thinking he had the stomach flu. Um, and they ran tests. Of course, they're like, when did you get your last physical? He's like, you know, like, 600 years ago, really never got it. So they ran blood work, did tests on him. Um, and of course we just thought, well, we weren't sure what it was. They were going to call us next thing you know, we're getting sat down in the doctor's office. Um, and he had testicular cancer and was diagnosed with testicular cancer from that appointment. Um, yeah, it had, um, spread, um, into his stomach and chest and we were going to fight, right? They said he had a 2% chance of not making it. He was going to make it. He had something called teratoma tumors, which are um, tumors that you can get rid of the cancer. And then they become benign, but they can be aggressive. So they do need to be removed. Um, So we made it through, you know, the two procedures to have those removed. 
Um, we just kept fighting along. I lived with him and took care of him. Um, I stopped school, obviously, to make sure that we were going to be able to handle everything together. Obviously, he couldn't work as much as he had been. Obviously, he was sick. So him getting better was a number one priority. I mean, he was my life. Um, and so we fought together. I mean, as hard as we could. Um, we went into the final surgery. They were doing a surgery to remove um, a mass that was around his vena cava which is in his abdomen. And he went in and he was always like, he was the bright light too. I don't think he ever had any enemies. I mean, mm -hmm. Marshall was his name and he, um, like how people think that I light up rooms, he did the same thing. And, you know, he was just kind to every person he met. And even when he was sick, still continued to be that way. Um, we went into surgery. Um, I had to sign the papers um, that day to bring him into surgery. Um, and he kind of lost it and broke down, which was not him. And he was in construction, a tougher guy. Um, and went into surgery. And in the meantime, rewind, his mom was also in the hospital battling cancer. So they were in the hospital at the same time. Um, she had gotten bladder cancer from an autoimmune disease, um, a medication, you know, how you see on those labels, they say may cause side effect of, well, unfortunately she had gotten cancer. So I kind of stayed at the hospital. Marshall was the only child and bounced between the two rooms. Um, wow. so she was in the hospital while he was going through surgery. Um, and they took him, took a break in the surgery, let us see him. And I remember telling him his coloring was off, you know, and at the time I'm 22 years old. Right. And they're like, Oh honey. Oh, sweetheart. You're okay. And I'm like, yeah, his coloring's not right. I've known him a real long time. We've been friends a long time. It's just something off. Next thing you know, they go bring him back into surgery. They put me in the waiting room and they come running out. And before they can get him all hooked up to continue surgery, they started losing him and they were unable to get him back. And I never saw him awake again. Um, which was hard because, you know, when you think 2% chance of not making it, I mean, who thinks they're going to fall on that end. Right? right. So, and he was strong. Right. I mean, I said, so part of me, you know, when he cried and he would cry and tell me I didn't deserve to deal with this. And he, you know, it was all this big breakdown before he went to surgery. It's part of me is like, I wonder like if in his gut he knew, but you don't think, you know, I was like, you're going to be fine. Look what the doctor said. And Never saw him awake. He passed April 2nd of 2000, um, and his mom hung on. She was in the hospital for a longer, but then um, she passed, actually, August 9th of 2000. Oh, my God. So they both passed. Um, good news is his dad is still like a second dad to me. I still go visit him in Galena, um, and that's part of my life. I tell anyone that enters my life, and I have had some significant others that didn't take it so well or jealous, and that's why they're not my significant others anymore because that's part of who I am and my life. And we say, I love you. He's literally like a second dad to me. Um, and you know, I continue that on because that is part of who I am and I'm a positive part of his life and he's a positive part of mine. He helped me get through that. We helped each other. And, you know, so yeah, that was hard, very hard going through that. Um, so what, agree with that. what do you feel? It's been God, 20, over 20 years now. Um, how do you feel like that's changed you? And how do you feel like, do you feel like you've ever, you know, gotten stronger? Do you feel like, you know, you can either, that something like that can either make or break you? 
for sure. And so I decided, so obviously there's things I don't remember from that. Like people talk about the funeral and how I made this great speech. And I don't remember talking. I don't remember who came to the hospital. I don't know how my dad got to the hospital. There's things you could ask me at the day. I don't have a clue. But I think everyone really expected to me being so young. I mean, who do you talk to at that age, right? You, you're 22 years old and none of your friends have gone through that. Right. Um, they tried to put me in a group for support and everyone was way older than me. And every time I would talk, they would just bought, cry. Oh. Cry because I was so young and it shouldn't have happened to me. And that wasn't helping me. So I'm like, what is going to help me? And this is what I tell people um, now. And I'll explain how I have that interaction. But it, I really need to figure out what was going to heal me, right, and make me better. And I wasn't going to be the person that completely fell apart and, you know, hit in a corner and just balled up after all this. I wanted to make changes and help people, you know, be in this, you know, that we're going to be in the situation that I was. Because at 22, I didn't have a lot of people to talk to. Like, my, I was very grateful for my friends. My friends were amazing. I couldn't have asked for more help from them. But nobody knew what to do with me, right? No one knew what it was like to go through it. You know, you, they send you to a therapist. Okay, well, that's great. But have you been through it? Um, no. Uh, well, well, okay. So, so I decided um, that I wanted to give back. And I became, through Immerman Angels, which is an amazing organization that matches um, caregivers and cancer patients through people that have already been through it. Um, and I became a mentor for young caregivers um, that they could call as a resource. And I'm even mentoring one now. A young lady whose fiance is battling cancer um, hmm. that has spread to his brain and helping her, you know, like, you know, is this normal? Why do they act this way? This is happening. What did it, you know, how does it feel? Or is this something I should be feeling or am I wrong or wow. am I crazy? So that's one thing I wanted to take on because there's not a lot of young ex people that have experienced this. Um, and I wanted to go in the hospitals and be with the families because I was that family, right? Sitting in the waiting room, waiting for him to come out. And so I started doing therapy work or just, well, work with patients on the oncology floor and visiting patients and going in there with balloons and, you know, dressing silly and bringing them surprises and talking to families and letting them know, like, I get it. I know where you are and I've been there. Um, and then I actually am involved in animal rescue, which is a whole nother part of my life and rescued a dog who, Koopa, who, had been severely, severely abused um, and confiscated from a home um, due to this. And I met him and him and I had this incredible bond. And while at first going to the hospitals, while I did it, was scary. I'd have to literally sit in the car and pet myself. I was so scared. Marshall, when he passed because he was an unexpected death, did not look like Marshall. It was mm -hmm. something I still see to this day. Um, he didn't, didn't look like himself at all. And so my journey by myself, I would sit there in advocate parking lot and just talk myself through the fact that I wouldn't not, you know, these people are alive when I go in their rooms and I'm not going to see anything like that. And it was hard for a while. And once I got Koopa, um, I knew he had it in him to be a therapy dog. Everyone's like, he's a Husky. Oh God, a Siberian Husky. And he <laughs> wowed the pants off of everyone. And I'm like, that's what you do, right? You give people a big fat surprise and turn something I don't think you can do that say, yeah, um, you can. And he did. So you would bring um, him to the hospital. Would you bring him to the hospital? 
Yeah, we got to certify as a therapy dog team. Okay. Um, we were a team for about 10 years. And he went to the rooms with me and visited patients. Um, we worked on the oncology floor. Um, and he went with me everywhere. Like, I dressed him up. We brought goodies. The nurses loved him. Like, you know, a lot of those people on the cancer floors don't get to see their animals for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. You know, they're separated from them. And Coop, you know, we'd go to houses. And then during, you know, even during COVID, we would do... Um, Zoom chats and this like group where we could like talk through there and still help people so that it didn't disappear. And we became this team and he gave me the strength to get where I wanted to be because doing it by myself was a little bit scary, right? Every room I went into, it was bracing myself that, you know, I wasn't going to see the horrible things I saw right when I lost Marshall that, you know, I started focusing on him prancing down the halls and excited to go see the patients and Man, he went through abuse. He had hip dysplasia caused by trauma. They had said he had either been beaten with a bat or thrown out of a car. Oh, my God. We did therapy and surgery, and he bounced back. And he, every time we went to the hospital, he would bark and pace, and he was so excited um, to be there. And he had been through so much. And I think when people talk about me and say that I've been through so much, it was like we had both done it and I'm doing it and here we are doing it together and we're giving back and trying to help. And he wanted to be there. Like he wanted, he was so excited. Our set day where we went to the hospitals or, you know, did our events or visited someone in their home, he was ready to rock and roll. And it gave me focus. And, you know, I'd be laughing more than that anxious pit in my stomach when I go to the hospital to try to uh, visit the patient or go to someone's house, you know, that I knew, was going to be really sick and um, so he, not, I wanted to be, I wanted to be that light. Like I said, for families and for young people that hadn't gone through it, I wanted to change things. Cause I, everyone's like, how do you do it? You've been through a bad experience and doesn't it make you? Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. It makes me think of Marshall, but I know that he'd be looking down and he'd be proud um, that I was doing something because he was a very positive person and that I was able to, help others that couldn't help me at that time when I was going through it. So it sounds like this, this dog helped you, you helped the dog and you both as a team helped other people that were in that same situation that you may have experienced. Yes. That's pretty amazing. Wow. So you guys, you went, you did this for how long with the, with the dog? Um, nine and a half years. I actually lost him earlier this year, horribly, to um, a hemangiosarcoma, which is a blood vessel cancer that's very aggressive and very fast. It was heartbreaking. Broke my heart. His birthday. I know it did. Today. I know. I know. I read that on your post, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, we're gonna tr- we're gonna have a tribute to him today. <laughs> this is the perfect day to do this." I know. It's his I like know, podcast yeah, birthday party. Was amazing. I have never, I have to tell you, Lisa, I have never, I follow all of your stuff on social media. I have never in my life seen anybody have a connection to an animal like you. You have, and you have, I mean, how many dogs do you have at home right now? Right now we have one foster, hopefully foster fail, but we're still working on that. Um, We have our four and then um, my other half's mom lives with us and she has her three. So we have a total of eight right now. Wow. My God, do you see what and I mean? We dog sit, so sometimes we have ten, sometimes we have twelve, depending who needs rescue in the dog world, because that's a big thing of my life too. Um, sometimes it's just depending. We take in an extra here or there if we need to. Were you always like this, or is this something that just like developed through your healing process? I believe I've always had a passion for animals. I've always loved animals. 
but I believe, I, I feel like maybe, and I think about it a lot because just like when I was young and going through my household being dysfunctional and abusive, like I, we taken a lot of serious cases and I know, you know, I was also attacked by one of my fosters yes. and bounced back. Yes. I'm still here to talk about it, but, um, you know, we take in the very damaged ones, the ones who have been damaged that no one wants to handle, that everyone thinks is not going to be okay, the really sick ones that can't walk, and we fix them. And again, it, it to me, it's something they can't control what happened to them, right? They can't, they don't ask to be in your household. They don't ask to be chained outside. They don't ask to be, you know, abandoned. They don't ask to be abused. But it's what their lives can become afterwards, and what they can make of it and make that change. And you're a big part of that. And we fostered 66 dogs so far. Wow. Wow. That's, mm-hmm. that's amazing. How big is this friggin' house that you live in? <laughs> Not very big. Not very big. We have a big yard. <laughs> but, a um, ranch. You know, wow. the more the merrier. You know what? It's just because of knowing you, your heart, you really are just so caring. And I mean, I, I wish I had a tenth of your compassion because I have to be honest, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> you have to be an animal lover. Like I like animals. I like them. They're cute. They're nice. They're sweet. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, you, you, but you have something special where you just see other, you see their soul. You see like, you see their heart. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And it was fun. Well, when I, so we've taken dogs, right. And I know what's coming to me. It's never a rescue, not surprise me and not tell me what I'm in for. I know sometimes they're, they can be aggressive or medical or have issues. Um, the one I was actually mauled by, I was warned it had bitten before at the doctor knew. And a lot of times it's just a fear and was ready. Um, and he was nine years old. Um, and you could see the fear in his eyes. I don't think he ever wagged his tail. And Vic, my other half, was not totally trusting of him. Um, but I, you know, wanted to give him that opportunity. And you could see with him that people were not kind to him. Mm-hmm. Um, did it bite me in the ass? Not the ass, but the face, I should say. Um, <laughs> a yeah, little bit. It was yes, bad. He mauled me to the point where... Vic had to come get the dog off me. He went for my throat and my jaw. Um, and I had to have 28 stitches to piece me back together. Wow. Um, and Vic had to come in the room and hold the dog to get me off there. And it's funny. So my other half is a wonderful human being, but he's also very, you know, you don't see him scared. He's not that type of guy. He's very like, so when I removed my hands from my face, I'm sure you could see the blood. And I'm like, do I, is it that bad? And seeing his face, I was like, even though he's like, no, it's, you're okay. Like it is, but it was to the point where he was driving me to the hospital. I remember not be, feeling like I could even stay awake. And when the doctor saw me, I knew then I was in big trouble. But after that happened, it was funny. Cause all my friends were like, you're not going to foster, right? You're not doing that again. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I am. You want to know why? Cause you can't let one bad incident or one bad thing that happened, take it away from everybody else that you can help. Right. Same things with my life. Like just because I've been through some stuff doesn't mean that I don't extend that and choose to help other people just because I've been through it and want to tuck it away and hide it forever. I mean, yeah, it sucked, right? I mean, you know, I still have the scars from it across my throat and on my job, but it, you know, it's, it is what it is. And it's just, 
made me a better rescuer and he taught me something and I don't blame him. I blame the people that had him that weren't nice to him that caused him to have that kind of fear. Mm. That's that's wow. a really good way to look I, at it. I don't I don't know how you do it, but I'm going to find out and nominate you for sainthood cuz <laughs> Didn't I tell you she was going to be the perfect Jerome's like I go, you'll see. You'll see why I chose her for our resilience episode. And now I think well, he she sees didn't it. tell me anything about your story. So, you know, it was kind of like a, He's kind of following yeah, he's following along as you speak, just like yeah, the audience, I'm, really. I'm 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 actually speechless as I'm <laughs> I'm like, I I don't have anything to say. He's just in shock. His face yeah. is like, oh my God. So, Lisa, first of all, yes. I know I really appreciate you sharing so much about your life. And that is, like I said, why we do this podcast, so that other people can listen and think, oh my God, you know, I'm not alone. Or, you know, some of, I mean, some. Or they can be inspired by hearing what you've gone through and then feel like, okay, I can, I feel like I can do this. Right, now. right. So tell us, if you would, because you are such an advocate of animals, how can people help in terms of getting involved? Because I know you have a lot of organizations that are you know, kind of near and dear to your heart, but how can people really rescue or get involved with, um, you know, helping service animals? I would say number one need right now, the shelters and rescues are seeing more animals come in than ever before. Why, um, why is that? Because of COVID, people got dogs. <sighs> Everything. I mean, you have families where someone dies and it's their beloved pet. They dump them at the shelter. You have seniors oh. coming in there. You have dogs left tied out of shelters. And a lot of the shelters, people don't understand. They're like, they're killing dogs. They have to take in everything that comes to their doorstep. They don't, some of these shelters like Chicago Animal Care and Control, they can't turn them away. When these dogs show up eventually, like you'll see crates lined up down there with dogs. Wow. And, and you know, rescues want to pull, but they have to have fosters, right? And people, they need fosters. And it's not, some people are like, I'm not ready to have a dog. Well, you're not keeping the dog. It's when you foster and that's what is really needed right now, it's getting the dogs out of the shelter so they don't lose their lives because so many are losing their lives right now. Not that they're bad dogs, not that they're fault, but they're just pouring in. Um, when you when you foster for a rescue, the rescue pays for everything. They pay for their medical, they pay for their food, they pay for their crates. All you're doing them is giving a, a safe roof over their head and teaching them what it's like to be in a home and with someone that cares about them hmm. um, and overcome their trauma, you know, like what they've been through and, and know like kindness again. Um, because some of the stories, I mean, that I could share, you'd be just appalled at some of the things that go on with these animals and rescues want to help. And, you know, and if you can't take a dog in or it's not, you know, donate to your rescues, you know, volunteer, like, you know, whatever you can do. Um, something people don't realize too is look for help. Like sometimes people just get discouraged or their animals aren't perfect. Like when you have a child that's not perfect, you don't get rid of them. Don't get rid of your animal necessarily right away and just toss them out the door. Because, too, when they take them to shelters, because I volunteer and I donate to shelters, so when they go in, owner surrenders have to sign a piece of paper saying they understand their dogs are going to be the first to be euthanized, and they sign them. Wow. Yep, I understand, and they leave the dog, and they walk away. Wow. So, it's to me, it's just making a better choice, stepping into foster, you know, like, and I tell people, I pull you, I'm sure you've seen it. If you have any questions about fostering, ask me if you want to know what it's like, if you want to know the good, bad, the ugly, if you want to know how to do it, if you want to know, and it may be sometimes we have fosters for 
three weeks. Sometimes we have them for months. It's really depending on the dog, but. So um, here's what we're going to do, just in case people do want to get a hold of you for that, um, you know, topic. I'm going to tag yeah. you when we when we go live with this podcast, um, if you're okay with that. Yep. And I do want a picture, though, of you and all your furry friends. <laughs> you got to get me one, though, okay? I will get one. All I'll right. get them to all sit and behave. There, I had to keep them out of the bedroom because I didn't want them wrestling and playing in there. I, I, I hear, I hear a couple of them barking, and I'm like, how many animals does she have there? Um, so, right. It's the husky. It's the foster boy that's talking. Oh, and, and also for, for people that would want to be involved, and you talked about the mentoring uh, for people that are uh, dealing with their, uh, for caregivers, mm-hmm. um, how would people go about getting information on that? If they go to Immerman Angels and they go on there, you can be, it'll say a mentor for a caregiver or a mentor for like a patient, someone actually going through it. Um, and they need both. How do you, um, how do you spell that, Lisa? I am... E-R-M-A-N, Angels. Okay. Johnny Emmerman started the organization. He's a two-time cancer survivor, and he's an amazing human, too. I can't say enough good things about him. He is incredible. And he, I, we've had many personal conversations, and he, um, yeah, he's incredible. And it's his organ foundation, and he started it because of what he went through. And wow. it's just done amazing things for people. Well, thank you for sharing this. We so appreciate it. Um, this is a great episode, and I we will make sure that, like I said, we tag you, but we need your picture. So work on that photo shoot. <laughs> yeah, thank you so I'll much work for and getting them together with a treat. Treats usually work. Yes, there you go. There you go. Thank you, Lisa. Yeah. You're yeah, amazing. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for for sharing your story. My, it's my pleasure. You know, I hope it reaches a few people that can help. I can help, and you know move, help them get over something they've been through. They didn't think they could and know that you have a choice. Right. And it's a kind of, sometimes you just got to just look forward, march ahead with your head, head held high and uh, keep going. Well, thank you. We so appreciate thank it. You. All right, Lise. We'll Take talk to you soon. Guys. Okay. Bye. Bye. Wow. Wow. I told you. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm listening to the story. I'm like, I should be asking questions. You, I know you couldn't. And, You're and in like, disbelief. I'm like, I, just got to listen to this. Um, yeah. So talk about resilience. That is. Oh, my God. You know what, you guys? Yeah. You want to know the definition? She made my resilience story sound like, yeah. sound like shit. <laughs> <laughs> so if I asked you before where your resilience level was, you may have said an eight or a nine. Now you're back. You, it's like makes you want to be like, eh, I'm a three. Well, no, I, I think she's just like a 20 she on a is. scale of one to ten. I she, mean, that is. If you met her, you would. I'm telling you, she's the most gregarious just fun-loving, positive person. You can't imagine that she's been through all this. You just can't. And then then not only is she talking about her childhood and then her fiancé, right? Mm -hmm. And then you find out she gets mauled by an animal that she's fostering, and she's just like, well, it's just part of the job, you know? Well, yeah, but then to, you know, have gone through um, the uh, losing Marshall, and then instead of just saying, oh, I'm going to go, and curl up in a corner, mm-hmm. she goes, I'm going to figure out how to help people who have been in the same situation because she's right. When you're, you know, you get a little older, you know, you get to that point where, you know, you start to, you have friends that have family members that are going through that sort of thing. It's just that time in your life. But yeah. when you're 20, your, your friends don't have a reference point for that. Oh, for sure. For sure. 
at 22 years old, your friend's reference point is let's go get drunk and right, everything yeah. will be fine. Exactly, you know, yeah. I mean, you can't even wrap your brain around it. So, um, God, I can't, these episodes are hard. I want to like cry during all of them because wow. they're just so hard to listen to, but also in a well, way uplifting. But, but inspirational Very too, much. because, you know, we're, we're looking at Lisa having come out the other side mm-hmm. and all the positive things that came out from it, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, a difficult story, but at the same time, it's, it's inspirational. It really is. Wow. Well, I, that, I, I don't, I don't have. That's that's it. That's We're it. done. Yeah. We got nothing I, else to say. I got nothing else to say. So, for two fit to be tied, I'm Jerome. I'm Constance, and we'll see you next time. See ya.